This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. There's no better time to support small businesses than at the moment. Support a small veteran-owned business by visiting veteranownedus.com. If you're a veteran-owned business and you're not listed, join up. Go to veteranownedus.com slash join up and join up using one of the membership levels there. Again, let's support a small veteran-owned business by searching veteranownedus.com. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. I'm glad uh, we were able to carve out some time and put something on the calendar here. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor. I I love I love this uh, show, and I I love who you've had on, and I I'm humbled to be included in this. I know that you spent some time in Ranger Regiment, correct? I did. Yeah. So yeah. was now you were an officer. So did you go into um, OCS route, ROTC, West Point? Uh, I, what was it? I was an ROTC guy out of the University of Rhode Island. Okay. Um, but from the time I was a cadet, I knew I wanted to be in the Rangers. Um, I uh, my first assignment was at the 82nd Airborne Division, and I, I, uh, as soon as I had the requisite time to to put my packet in for the regiment i did and at the time i had a brigade commander who was not necessarily pro ranger yeah um and so he said no um and then another guy came in guy named horst uh carl horst who the day he took command called me into his office said here you want to go to the regiment and i said uh, yes sir and he signed off on my paperwork and uh you know luckily general mccrystal at that time was the rco and uh, I because I was a senior first lieutenant, and uh, he said okay. And I I went to Third Ranger Battalion in 1997, and uh, they had to like kick me out of there, you know, screaming uh, to go to the advanced course or the infantry captain's career course. In fact, I got a letter from my branch guy that said, "Hey, either you go now or you got to get out of the military." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's kind of the uh i guess the bad thing about going to regiment as an officer as an enlisted guy you know well even back in the day people would spend on average about three years in regiment and get out actually i think the time frame at that time frame for enlisted was probably about two years you know and then leave but there's guys now that's been there 10 12 15 years yeah. blows my mind and and it's because they get part of this whole tribe there in regiment. They get very comfortable with that environment. They know the people on their left and the right. You know, they feel comfortable with that that you know culture and everything that's there. And they don't want to leave. But yet, officers, unfortunately, it's you know it's pretty much just an assignment. You, you can move on yeah. to the next one. Well, the good news is, uh, you know, I was able to come back again. So I spent about 
I don't know, I guess 24 months out as a captain and then went right back in and was there from like 2001 to 2005. So Third I, I bad again that, or at the regiment? Uh, no, I went, I, I started at the regimental headquarters. Okay. Uh, I was a regimental air officer for a little while and then I commanded Charlie company in one seven five. Oh, okay. So was it one of these things that you asked to go out to one seven five or was it you were uh, that's volunteered? Was, that, that, that's where I was selected. Uh, at the time <laughs> it was Kershaw, uh, was the commander and he ended up actually relinquishing demand to uh, rich Clark um, who was another phenomenal leader. So I was really, really lucky. And I, I was excited to go to 1st Battalion. I mean, I, 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 I truly enjoyed my time in 175. Yeah, that's really cool that you got a chance actually to experience several different of the battalions as well as regimental headquarters to see the differences there. But then also spending time in the conventional army, what did you kind of take away or bring to the conventional army from that? So I think the first time I went back uh, after my lieutenant time, um, uh, it was it was you know we started I was actually uh, put into when we were setting up the strikers the the brand new unit, and so kind of bringing that mentality. A guy named Nicholson was the battalion commander, and there were two of us, a guy named Pat Work and I, who were both from Third Ranger Battalion. He picked us both, and we commanded next to each other. Um, and they wanted to create the striker thing that they had the mentality of a ranger battalion on wheels. And, you know, I, I think, I think it was a, it was a natural fit. So I got to kind of continue to bring kind of that ranger mentality that, that ranger philosophy are, uh, along with Abrams charter into this brand new unit. It was just starting off. That's fascinating. Actually, I didn't even know anything about that. Uh, you know, there's always been this bit of a rift between, you know, those guys at 11 Mikes and 11 Bravos and, you know, the whole mechanized and everything. And in some cases, guys didn't volunteer for mechanized. They came in 11X and ended up getting picked up for that. You know, it was a, it was a bit of one of those things in these of the military. But, you know, in your case... There was a discussion, a true discussion about, all right, you know, there's going to be a need here. We can't always be light infantry. We've got to be able to to shoot, move, uh, maneuver, and communicate, you know. So what's yep. the fastest way that we can get there? And speed uh, to the assault is the, the big thing, you know. It's the whole reason why the M1 Abrams started changing the whole, you know, war book and everything about how we're going to fight the battle because the speed of a JP4 jet engine in the back of that thing rewrote history yeah and and so it was fun to be on kind of the ground floor of of this this new idea that i mean and they put the right leadership i mean i i had great leaders above me and incredible ncos and you know uh until uh 9-11 all we did was train we didn't pull any duty so i was in the shoot house probably as much as i had been in the ranger regiment yeah um, so it was really, it, it was great. And we had this new platform and I, I, again, I had a great commander who said, Hey, go figure out how to use this. It, having been a ranger platoon leader, go figure out how to use this in a ranger like fight. Yeah. And, uh, it was awesome. Do you think that it had something to do with, um, the Black Hawk down incident, uh, the fact of, you know, the 10th mountain division coming in and, and helping, uh, in that situation, some stuff in vehicles or, or do you think it had nothing to do with that at all? I, I don't know that it had anything to do with that. I think that we saw in the military, there was this, there was a, a very heavy mentality that was certainly, uh, projected at a near peer 
uh, enemy. And then we had these small units that were focused on irregular warfare or asymmetric or the asymmetric threat. And, you know, I, I give Shinseki a, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of credit because I think he saw that the asymmetric threat was going to happen and we needed to have some sort of a hybrid force that could handle the asymmetric threat. And he picked a platform that was spectacular and he, you know, but we got to keep that light fighting mentality and we weren't, you know, we, we weren't tethered to our vehicles. The vehicles were quite honestly, they would be in support by fire. They were big machine guns that we could, we could put somewhere right. and sometimes we could roll up and we wouldn't be, you know, uh, exposed for as long. So I think it was, I think it was a, a nod to kind of the irregular warfare that we, we ended up seeing. So, and I don't think, you know, I think Shinseki gets a lot of, a lot of grief for the black beret, but what he doesn't get is a lot of credit for, you know, not only having his little pet project that all chiefs of staff have, but he got it done in his tenure and it was thinking about the future fight. It wasn't just like his little pet project that he'd always wanted to do since he was lieutenant. It was, hey, I think this is the kind of fight we're going to be fighting. And, you know, FB, FCB2 was there. And uh, it was, I just don't think he gets a lot of credit for that. And he should, because uh, I, I think it was, uh, it was a turning point in how we thought about war. Yeah. You know, you and I both know that every leader, chief of staff, especially in a lot of those positions up there, end up putting their mark or their stamp some way within the military. It's the reason why we've changed uniforms 42 times, I think, since <laughs> Vietnam, you know. And yeah. so we used to joke, you know, that every time a new leader comes into place, a new general officer, um, their spouse decides that they want to change something about the uniform. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it certainly <laughs> felt that way as you had to go out and buy new uniforms every time you turned around. Yeah, but, I, th I think I went through a couple. Yeah. I, I went through a couple different ones. You know, I know there was a lot of beef about the Black Beret and the, going out into the uh, conventional military, but I personally think that it makes the uniform look sharp. I know it's not a great headgear in terms of blocking the sun and those types of things, but, you know, it, it allowed the, the military in a different way, I think, to join together once they started learning how to wear it. Um, I think it took a period of time there. A lot of people, you know, didn't know how to quite wear the, the beret the way it, probably should be worn but you know um now i think that it's not worn as often as it once was in that period of time frame and so it seems to be more of the norm you know it, it's it's kind of fit its group which everything and change in the military yeah. happens that way well and i think you know i, I think it, it it really depended on how you looked at it you know i at the end of the day even coming from the regiment i was like it's a hat let's not get crazy right um and at the at the strikers we actually did a, a a process where guys earned their beret just like rangers earn their beret we they went through you know kind of a ranger stakes kind of event uh, for 48 hours to earn their beret uh when i um when i was a battalion commander of basic training I, you know they earned their beret I, I said you don't issue it to them you collect all their berets up when they get from their issue on day one, you'll hand it to them at rates of passage because yeah. it should be an earned piece, you know, cause that was the issue is, is earned not given. And I think if you gave it to them, yeah, you're right. It, but you want to make it feel as special as it is. And you don't have to take, you don't have to take the pride away if you just make it something that they, they feel that they've accomplished to get it. Was it something when you came in the military that your your parents or forefathers or somebody in your line had gone in, or were you the first to kind of go into the military? Uh, 
so I had a I had a grandfather that was in World War One, but he passed when I was probably like five or six. Um, so uh, for me, based I, I didn't have the best childhood, um, and uh, there was a I was estranged from my dad for a long time, and. Um, after graduating high school, I got kicked out of the house and long story short, uh, when I finally was in college, uh, I really thought that there was, I I mean, I had been homeless Mm -hmm. and here I was doing well in college and getting on a full ride. And I said, it was very, I had a very patriotic thought, which was, I want to give back. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't really know what that looked like, but I knew I wanted to serve. Um, I, I started with the Marine Corps PLC program, uh, met with an ROTC recruiter who said, Hey, we'll let you be a ranger and we'll send you jump out of airplanes right now. And, uh, I asked the Marine Corps guy, I said, Hey, they said, they'll do this. What, what can you tell me? And they're like, you'll be a Marine. I'm like, okay, well I'll go do this army thing. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted to serve, but I wanted to serve with what I considered the best guys. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I think that that's what most people end up wanting to do. Like when I came in, you know, the, the only way to go, let's say special forces was go, uh, two years, you had to be an E4, two years active service, those types of things. So it made it a little bit more difficult. And I always thought the same thing that if you ever, you know, if you ever got into a combat situation, this is pre nine 11, you always wanted to go downrange with the best people on your left and right. And um, that that was what was most important for those, especially within combat arms. And, you know, going into the soft community was, you know, an, a, a way to get additional real life experience training. They took it very seriously. They didn't, you know, training wasn't one of those things. You just went out there to get a couple snooze and, you know, do a little bit of this or a little bit of that and stuff. It was really about you know, the battlefield and what you might experience in that time frame. And I, I first experienced that in the uh, 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment when I served uh, with them. Um, it was the first unit that I'd ever served with that really had that kind of mindset. And um, so I, I can totally relate to that. But you you spent, you know, enough time in, you separated or retired as a lieutenant colonel. So outside of regiment, what did you end up serving in? Uh, so after, the, after my time at the regiment, um, I went to the uh, asymmetric warfare group. I went to selection and was selected, and I stayed there. I was there from 2000, and I uh, went to selection in 2006, and was and left in 2011. Okay. And uh, when you retired, when was it? I retired in 2015. Okay. Um, so I, I was selected for battalion command. Um, went to Fort Jackson to command. Uh, did that. My last job was uh, running the Army School for Resiliency, Leadership, and Fitness, and uh, Fort Jackson was definitely a place that I didn't need to stay, um, <laughs> but I did retire in Columbia, South Carolina. And How uh, did you end up staying then? I, I did end up staying in Columbia. Columbia is beautiful. I love Columbia. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that Jackson considered, you know, continues to get better. But, uh, it was, um, the first 18 months of my command were probably the toughest time in my career. Really? Uh, was it just because of leading basic trainees and those types of things or no, it was, it was so, so we were kind of set up for failure. Uh, I think in my year group, there were like 16 of us who had served in the regiment who got selected for basic training and Dempsey sent out this note that said, 
you know, TRADOC will no longer be a dumping ground. We're, we're going to send proven warfighters, uh, and we want you to change basic training. And, you know, I, I had, by that time I had 11 combat deployments and I was like, okay, I, I can get on board with that. That's great. But he didn't tell anybody else that. And then he went to go be the chairman. And so I'm going with the, the last advice I got, which was change basic training. And so I'm trying to make things more realistic. I'm trying to get away from the obedience and more towards the discipline and, you know, having soldiers think and, uh, you know, do more uh, tactical, you know, things and, and, and train them in marksmanship the right way. And man, the, uh, the bureaucrats at Fort Jackson hated me. Really? Uh, well, was oh, yeah. it uh, because they were old school? Yeah, because because I made I was making them work, and you know I say that that's not fair. That's well, ego talking. I, that, that's I, I know what fair. you mean. <laughs> um, let me let me say it this way: is I was doing it differently. They were uncomfortable with how different it was, and it would it required them to think differently, and that's hard sometimes for people. Yeah. So for eighteen months, it's you know constantly getting reported up to the CG, and people want to get you fired, and then. Uh, this guy named Dov Seidman, uh, who wrote the book, how, um, I had a, a really good friend who, uh, who was working for him, who sent me the book. And I, I called him and I said, you know, I'm doing all the stuff that's in this book. Like that's what we're doing. And so Dov came down and he spent two days with us and he wrote an article in Forbes and the chief of staff, who was General Odierno at the time, saw it and wrote like on his Facebook page or in some message. He said, hey, what Colonel Glick and his drill sergeants are doing is what the rest of the army ought to be doing. And literally the next day I was, you know, oh, my gosh, JC, you know, how are you doing this training? Are you, everybody, like, <laughs> you know, and, and it was at that moment. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. This is not uh, this is not what I want to do anymore. Yeah, you got to go all the way to um, to the point of where you get out into the media in order to change the military. Yeah, there's definitely something wrong there. Yeah, and not yeah. only that, but as a battalion commander, I would have thought that you would have had some latitude. You know, I'm sure you did as well. Well, I, I and I took all the latitude in the world because I figured it's really hard to fire me. Yeah, um, it didn't it didn't keep people from trying, but uh, you know, I I really wanted to create a soldier that mattered. Mm -hmm. A soldier that wasn't, you know, some of the things that we don't realize is, okay, so an average basic training class has a 12% attrition rate, but 50% of those that, that start 50% don't make it past their first enlistment. So we're missing a whole bunch more on the way. So I averaged an attrition rate of 22 to 25%. And, you know, Fort Jackson was horrified because I had the highest attrition rate. But the truth is, those those folks were going to go anyway. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't doing stuff that was uh, above the standard. What I was doing was actually holding them to what the standard said, and ah, and, point. and and teaching them. Okay, you know, for example, uh, and I talk about this. You know, so so my first book is all kind of about the experiences of of changing kind of this mentality. But there was initially this idea that. At Fort Jackson, you were going to shoot, let a kid shoot until he qualified. So however many rounds it took, you're going to let him shoot. Now, the book says they get three opportunities to qualify. Well, I, you know, I said, how about three opportunities to qualify if the guy 
already failed his PT test, if he's been a behavioral problem, if he's been whatever, he has not earned more than three times. He gets what the minimum is. Yeah, this is basically but, his second strike. Right. Second but strike. A kid, right? But a kid who, you know, has been killing it on the PT test and, you know, working really hard and being a good leader, yeah, give him more ammo. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea of, well, you have to treat them all the same. Why would we treat them all the same? We want better soldiers. So you, you reward guys who are doing be- who are better soldiers. If he needs a couple more rounds, we give it to him. And we ended up going through less rounds than anybody else because we weren't just shooting everybody and we weren't holding everybody to three. Um, there was there was such a fear of actually in my mind. I, I felt a lot of times there's a fear of actually commanding, of mm. actually leading, and making decisions. I know what the book says, but that's some dude who was sitting at the basement at Fort Benning, and and I'm here right now, and I understand what this says, and I think that you put me in. If if you don't need me to make this kind of decision, then why not put anybody here? Right, right. Well, I I wouldn't think that we would want that kind of um, soldier anyway. To your point, I mean, why pass this individual on? I think that's where we've gotten to the military, where we pass the individual on to the command and let the command deal with the the individual, the soldier, to determine whether or not they're really physically, mentally fit or capable of, you know, being retained within the military. And, And like you say, you know, in most cases many of them end up leaving before their first enlistment. So why didn't we help that out in the very beginning within basic training? Because I thought that's the whole purpose of basic training in the first place, right? Is to separate those who will survive from those who probably wouldn't. Unfortunately, you know, and and I will tell you that I I had a very, a, a very incredible career. I can't think of any leaders or NCO leaders that I worked for or with that I didn't think were awesome throughout my career until I got to Fort Jackson. And then I ran into a couple of, a couple of both. And it was, it's, and, and I'm glad that it was at the end of my career. Um, yeah, because it would, it, I probably would have been out a lot earlier had it not been. You know, we find that same type of thing. I'm sure you have as well. Now that you've separated within the private sector, you have those people who that's the way they've always done it. They're very comfortable in that space. They have old style leadership mentalities as far mm-hmm. as, you know, they're not willing to um, to allow people to have flex time, allow people to have, you know, be remote or those types of things because they want to see everybody in a cube, everybody in an office, even though those settings are not always the ideal and it costs a hell of a lot of money to maintain that for a lot of organizations just all kinds of things like that and so i'm sure a lot of the lessons learned that you've had throughout your military experience has definitely qualified you um to go out and and talk with some of these uh these organizations about some of the struggles because i know i do it a lot you know i try to educate but still i run up against individuals who are just not willing to learn they're not willing to let go that's the style of leadership that they want yeah yeah, and I, I, I actually am writing an article right now about the rise of the anti-establishment leader and mm. how guys like Trump and Sanders are popular because they are anti-establishment. And I was just working with an organization, and their leader, a, a man in their leadership said, hey, your message, he went to one of my speeches, he goes, your message may play with these guys, but it doesn't play with senior leaders. We we don't want you know guys making their own decisions. We 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 care about the bottom line, and that's it. 
but but and, that may help the bottom line, right? And, well, but but he wasn't going to be convinced. Like he wasn't going to be convinced, no matter what I said. So, so. basically, yeah, it's whatever um, fits the bottom line, and it goes along with what I agree with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was like, well, you know, and 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 again, he had had a couple of pops, so I probably shouldn't have even engaged with him as far as I did. But <laughs> but he was very he was very clear about you know it's a it's a feel good message as opposed to a, it works and and I I tried to explain you know my rangers and and and, and my guys in AWG and my guys when I was a battalion commander I, I focused on taking care of them they took care of the mission I you know any any officer that says well, I'm taking care of the mission uh, okay well you're obviously you're lying and you're arrogant because uh, uh, once uh, once the plan's done, they're they're executing, they're making it happen, and you you give them room to make it happen, and you give them guidance where they need it, um, and uh, and you let them do their job. And if you take care of your people, they can accomplish anything. I'm a firm believer in everything you just said, but I think the challenge out there today is that there are enough individuals that have been led, unfortunately or fortunately, however you may want to look at it by individuals who are of the old school mindset. And so many of them feel like you've got to kind of earn your way from the, you know, the, um, the mail room all the way up into being an executive. You've got to know everything you've got to, you know, you don't trust anybody, you know, those types of things. And to, you know, the, nobody should be empowered to go ahead and think on their own. You have to provide them the proper guidance and you got to then always verify every day to make sure they're doing it. And that's why these people end up working, you know, 65, 80 hour weeks is because they don't know how to let go. And they, they're the ones that end up having all the stress issues, anxiety, everything else that ends up going along with the job. Um, I, I seen it a lot. And I seen also individuals who would go out on vacation, who would get called back by their leadership because to them, you know, vacation is just basically um, a, a right. Not, it's not a privilege. And so you're at my beck and call. And if I'm going to have a staff meeting, I don't care that you're over in Italy or wherever you're at. I want you here. And so they'd make them fly all the way back. And in some cases, it'd only be like a two hour meeting. And that was it. And nothing extremely important. But it's yeah. that control. And that's the that's kind of the mindset that some of them have been placed into now. Um, and, it, and it's difficult to break that. Well, I think the good news is, you know, and I, and my second book, I talk about exactly everything that, that you're saying there, but, um, I, I think the good news is, and I think it'll start with millennials. You know, everybody wants to rag on millennials, everybody to include, to include the veteran community, mm -hmm. which I think forgets that, Hey, those millennials are the ones that have been continuously fighting and continuously re-upping and still joining even though we've been at war for almost two decades now. Um, but here's the other thing about millennials that most leadership doesn't like. They demand good leadership, mm -hmm. right? I, I would have, you know, somebody said, hey, well, I'm going to give you 50 bucks, go shovel the driveway in the snow. And I, I could think, well, it's still snowing, so it's going to get covered back up. But I would have shoveled the driveway because it's 50 bucks and I'll do it. Yeah, it'll st it's still snowing. I got it. But millennials go, well, wait, I'm going to wait until it's done snowing. I'll still do it. Uh, or maybe I'll go get a plow or something and I'll do it that way. They're, they demand good leadership. They demand to know why, which good leaders should always be, have been saying anyway. 
Um, and, and I really think, and they, they certainly have the capability and the capacity that's greater than any generation before them. So I'm a big fan of millennials. I just think that leaders have to adapt and see them for the good. And then the negative parts of, you know, the development part, which every single generation has had the same developmental requirements. Well, then we develop those parts, you know, every, every challenge is an opportunity for us to adapt or us to educate someone else. So we're not willing to adapt a lot of time. And we think that educating is below us. And I, I think that's, that's a bad, that's a bad way to think. Yeah. There was a book. I don't remember the author's name and it escapes me, but you know, I I like to read a lot of management leadership books and one of them happened to be around, um, you know, if you're an individual and you place yourself on a scale of one to 10 at a specific level, let's say you feel like you're a six as a leader, you know, you still have a lot of growth potential. And of course, that means you you really look introspectively, you take away the ego aspect of it, and you really critically, you know, evaluate your skills, what you bring to the table, and you say, I'm a six. Well, you're not looking for a seven to be your leader. You're looking for an eight. You know, a nine would probably probably push you too far. You know, it's just going to blow your mind at that point. But an eight is a good, comfortable spot. A seven is somebody that's probably not going to offer you enough to challenge you on a daily basis. Where And you're going to feel like the individual probably doesn't know that much more. But an eight is going to constantly challenge you. And that goes to the, what that millennial is looking for. Um, you know, whenever I was an individual that was looking for a good leader, I was looking for that eight. As a matter of fact, sometimes I might even look for the nine and see if I could just keep my head above the water and, because I'd probably learned so much from that individual, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, but that's the individuals who really want to challenge themselves and, and want to seek uh, leaders who, uh, you know, have a lot to offer. And instead, what we find out there is still a society of leaders that really don't want to be challenged on a daily basis. They really want you to go out and execute uh, whatever it is that they say. They don't like to be questioned. And uh, that's the ones that are really the should be the dying breed. Unfortunately, they're the ones in a lot of cases that continue to get promoted and moved on (laughs) because they look the part, they act the part, they speak well, all those types of good things. And it's very unfortunate. So I'm glad that you're out there kind of sharing that knowledge because maybe more will start listening, uh, at least the young people to, to drive change. Well, I, I hope the young people listen because, you know, and I, I think back and I'm, I'm constantly saying that, you know, the first, I don't know, five or six years of my career, I, I wasn't a good leader. I was. Oh, we were all terrible. I, I, I was, you know, kind of what I think the army made me. And yeah. then. I started to open up and go, ah, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. I don't like it when it happens to me. I don't like being treated like this. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be a better way. And again, I worked for amazing leaders um, and, and had the best NCOs. I mean, I can count on one hand how many bad NCOs I had in my entire career. Uh, I can count on one hand how many bad officers I worked with. Everybody that I was around, I learned something from because they were just they were amazing. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I was really fortunate and unfortunately we've got to listen to those guys more. And, and some of the guys who I look back and go, that guy wasn't very good. Well, he made it to a X level and, you know, people think, oh, well, if you make it to that level, then you were a good leader. 
No. It, it's that, that that's not what that means. It means that you did all the you you did all the points that you had to do to get to that level. It doesn't make you a good leader. In or, fact, or somebody may have helped you along the way. Yeah, I, I I can I worked with one leader who was he wasn't a leader. He was all about himself, but he made it to the highest level, uh, you know, in, in the military. Um, and it's still kind of a, a household name today. So yeah, I won't put you on the spot and ask you who nah. that is. <laughs> uh, I want to switch gears now to today's time frame because you separated out of the military. Um, obviously, you talked about you've written a couple books, and I want to get into that in just a moment. But um, along the way, too, you've done a lot of speeches and and um, you know been on a lot of different platforms. But you've just recently entered into a new role, and I I want to get into what that role is because I think there are a lot of similarities here that we want to we want to dive into. Look, I am so excited. Uh, yeah, so I just, um, in February, I became the national director for Merging Veterans and Players, whose mission is to take uh, former combat veterans and pair them with former professional or Olympic athletes to give them a tribe, to give them, uh, to give them a group again, a locker room, so to speak, to empower them through that transition. Um, transition can be a really lonely place and regardless of of all the great programs that this the the services put together and and even the you know the va services that that help with transition you're doing it alone you're by yourself and and being able to have that that tribe that empowers you and 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 encourages you and helps you to be accountable to goals and, 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 uh, and your future and what we, what we saw. And so the guy, the guys who developed this are, uh, Jay Glazer, um, Fox sports guy, uh, Bellator, you know, he was an MMA fighter. He was a reporter for a long time, still doing the Fox and, uh, Nate Boyer, who was a green beret. Um, and then, uh, you know, played a little bit for the Seattle Seahawks and, and then got out. Um, there's so many, uh, similarities between elite athletes, elite level athletes and combat veterans, the things that they go through, you know, whether as, as you had mentioned, you know, the TBI or the CTE issues, um, the, the lack of identity, the loss of identity, you know, I mean, I was always a ranger. What was I when I got out? I'm not a ranger anymore. I'm just some dude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I think of a good friend of mine who was a quarterback for 15 years, uh, you know, two-time Pro Bowl guy. He gets out, and he's like, well, what am I now? You know, I how, how many times can I play golf right. uh, with a bunch of guys who don't understand me? Yeah. Um, same thing with so, combat veterans, you know, where they go out and, um, you know, here they were in the euphoric high, maybe in a combat situation, um, in the fight along with the, you know, their brothers on each, each side and everything. And then they come back home and they make the transition out. They're out in some location where there's probably not any military. They don't know how to connect. They don't have a tribe to your point. And so I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, when you have individuals that I, I know, I know that there are people out there that at least say that a lot of these um, professional athletes that you're describing probably have a very high ego. So how is it that they adapt and they actually connect with the individuals who come from, you know, 
the military and combat veterans? And, and do they think of them as peers or do they think, how do they, you know, basically accept them? You know, I think, I think, uh, you know, Jay, who, who started it, I think he, he articulates it well. And he says, veterans look up to professional athletes because they're on television and they're, they're whatever they know of them. But athletes really look up to veterans because they recognize like, oh my gosh, this guy works so hard to do things. And they're, they're truly odd. I mean, they really are odd by veterans and they're sometimes a little shy to actually open up about their accomplishments because they don't think it could even compare to a veteran's accomplishment. So what, while, you know, having worked uh, in and around the NFL for, for a little while, um, I have seen the egos, but I will tell you that in that in program, what wouldn't uh, I haven't seen the egos. I've seen, you know, guys who were you know six time uh, Pro Bowlers, you know, working out with with a guy who was you know in two seven Marines um, and talking to each other like they like they'd been friends forever um, because it, it's the shared experience. It's this idea that. You know what? What made us different in the military, different than uh, than a good portion of the civilian world. Not all the civilians world, but a good portion of the civilian world is. We didn't do things for self. We did things for the team. We did things for those around us. Mm-hmm. A lot of athletes have been that's been ingrained in them since they were very young. They did things for the team. They made certain decisions for the team. Um, it was about the guys to their right and left in, in that in that locker room. And that's something that translates really well. And quite honestly, one of the things that I've been pushing as a message now as the national director is I want us to continue that. Let's let's do for others. Right. So it's great that we're getting these people together and we're helping them and we're empowering them. And look, we have. We have populations that are incredibly underrepresented in any other veteran uh, groups. We have a large, uh, we have a large homeless population that now is finding its way to get to get homes. Uh, we have had substance abuse guys, and we try to get them help because what we do is we're just that first step. We're we're that we're that I got your back, so you can go do these other things to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, really important because I think you can have organizations that are, that are taking care of guys to make sure they can get homes and make sure that they get jobs and make sure that they do all these things. But that first step is really the hardest. And sometimes they don't even know where to go. You need like a Sherpa to, to navigate the transition world. Yeah. And so, and so I like that we can be that that Sherpa, that, that, Hey, I got your back. I'm here. Go ahead. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to push you. It, it's kind of like being the, uh, the net on the tightrope. We want you to walk the tightrope. We want you to get to your goal, but if you fall, we're going to catch you. And then we're going to put you right back up on the right tightrope, you know, and there's some ca- accountability, right? We want to make sure that if you have a substance abuse problem, Hey, to come here, you, you got to be, we need you to be clean and sober. And this is, and so you got to go here to be clean and sober, and then you can participate in program. Which is hey, the hey, same we, thing on both sides, right? Veterans and NFL, because I mean, absolutely. opioids, yeah, substance abuse, those types of things find themselves, especially because both sides get injured on many occasions. Physicians end up prescribing opioids or some kind of addictive form, you know, addictive form of prescription uh, medication. And um, then it kind of spirals from there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so we're not, we're not a substance abuse program. We're not a sexual assault program. We're not a, we're not a suicide prevention program. We provide the empowerment of a group of, a group of like-minded people that can help you get that first step that can kind of prop you up and give you a place to come every week. You, you come and you see those same faces. And what amazes me about, uh, about MVP, and we open up uh, our fifth chapter in New York City uh, this Wednesday, uh, the 11th of March. What amazes me is, I, you know, I've been out for four years. I, I, I go to different veterans things, you know, a couple here, a couple there. We continually have 50 to 70 people at program every single week. Wow. I've never seen anything like that in in the veteran community, and you know a third of them are athletes, but most of them are combat veterans, and they're there and they're working out, and you know sometimes they're getting to work out with Randy Couture, um, and sometimes they're just doing it together, and and uh, they're they're part of something, and they're part of something that's bigger than themselves. Yeah, and so sometimes they're sometimes they need the pickup, and sometimes they're there to pick someone else up. So you and I both have seen throughout social media the backlash of taking a knee. And so I'm just curious, um, has there been or have you heard a lot of, you know, conversation around that? Because I could hear veterans listening to this and saying, well, why, why do I even want to get involved? Because these are the very guys who disrespect, you know, Bob, you know, yeah. the whole thing. And so I'm just kind of curious um, what you've heard from those that you're close to, especially within the professional community. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that Nate Boyer was actually the guy, you know, one of our co-founders was, was the guy who talked to Colin Kaepernick and told him, don't be on your butt, actually take a knee because it's more respectful than sitting on your butt. Which a lot of people don't know that story. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, he did have that conversation. Now he, he doesn't, he doesn't like that he does it, but he doesn't think that he's trying to, um, disrespect any veterans. And, um, you know, I wrote I wrote an article about this, uh, and what was funny about the article, it went viral, and I was kind of a, a bad guy on both sides because uh, you're allowed to, if if where you work doesn't have a rule against something, you can do it. It, it. Your relationship with your flag is like your relationship with your God, whatever it is, it's yours. Mm-hmm. And um, so I believe in that free speech. I, I really do. I you can do that. I think it hurts the wrong people, but. I, I get it. To some degree, though, I'll, I'll argue that, you know, there's a an employee handbook. And so people have to be very careful. You know, there may not be a hard, fast rule, but somewhere within that employee handbook is probably a small disclaimer that will help protect the organization if they feel like it's going to have a backlash against them. Yeah, you would think it would, but it doesn't. Yeah. Um, they, they, they don't. They just didn't have any rules so that all the all the coaches and I was I was advising with teams when this all was going down. People were asking me what I thought. And I said, you know, I think there's got to be a discussion with your team about who do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, the team I was with and, and supporting was Ron Rivera's team, the Carolina Panthers. We didn't have anybody kneel and we didn't have anybody kneel because they all talked about it. and They all decided this isn't who we want to be. Um, there was no, these guys who are kneeling are bad. You're allowed to have a perspective and, and bring attention to something. My only point was, if you're going to do that, then what's point two, what are you going to do next? Mm -hmm. 
how are you going to make this? Nobody ever solved anything by taking a knee. Right. Right. So take the knee and then what? Right. Um, but I mean, look, we have, we have Thoreau who we think is a great, you know, American philosopher. He didn't pay his taxes and he went to jail and somebody paid his taxes for him and he got out and we think he's a great American. I'm okay with the, I I think I'm okay. And I think most of us, um, if we're really thoughtful about it, that's not the flag that's on our brothers and sisters coffins. That's, that's one piece of cloth that's in one location and it represents whatever you want it to represent, right? Much like the cross, much like the star of David, it represents what you want it to represent, but that doesn't mean it represents it for everybody. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, now it has not come up in, in our discussions, um, in the huddle, because quite honestly, if it did, I would probably say this, how is, how is this conversation going to make us heal this in, in my mind, what we do is we take something that's interesting and we make it important. Is it really important that he, that, you know, and again, what what do we have like three players in the whole NFL who are doing it now? Mm-hmm. Is it really important that they're doing it? No, it's interesting. It, it sells it sells newspaper. It's clickbait. It, it's not. It's these three guys who probably won't be playing in the NFL in three years. Yeah, let's, which let's has nothing to do with them. It's, it's just more that that's the NFL. Yeah, and look, the NFL's got some got some issues. I talk about it in my first book that they've. They've created some culture that allows this to happen. And, you know, even when they tried to address it, they said, okay, you're not going to do this. And then a bunch of players said, well, then we're going to do it. You're going to kick us out. And they got scared. So they said, okay, well, it's on hold then. Again, it's an interesting issue. But when we think of, I mean, just, just for example, one in three girls is going to be sexually assaulted before she's 18 years old. That's an important thing that we should be talking about. Not whether three dudes are kneeling about the American flag. That doesn't, that's not, that's, that's really not affecting anybody's life, but one in three girls. I mean, those are, those are somebody, somebody's list, somebody who's listening to you. That's their daughter. That's a discussion we should be having, but we get confused and we start talking about all this stuff that is interesting but it's yeah. not important. And that's that's like a key thing for a leader, right? Separate the interesting from the important. So take um, me take me to a meeting of what I could experience if I came to a chapter session. So uh, what's great is, you know, you do a warm up, you'll do you'll do a workout, right? And it's usually split. There's a, usually a little bit of MMA, either some strike fighting or some rolling, uh, medicine balls, but nothing nothing too difficult ever everything is doable for regardless of of maybe range of motion mobility fitness level we we scale it as appropriate mm-hmm. but we do this workout and we spend you know 5 or 10 minutes kind of getting our cool doing a cool down and then we do the magic which is the huddle and the huddle is our ability to be transparent with each other our ability to share those things with each other that that really matter the the struggles that we that we have that we had uh, are having um, the successes that we have are having um, what we miss, uh, what we don't miss. It, it's really this, this place where 
where people are talking about things that matter, right? It, it's, it's truly the important yeah. and it's the important, you know, right then and there and, and they're sharing and they feel like they're supported because they are, you know, they'll, they'll admit to things and they'll say, you know, I, I struggle with this or I struggled with that. And, you know, I don't know how to deal with this and, uh, you know, what do I do? And, and everybody talks and shares kind of like, you know, you have athletes who will say, well, this is kind of how I dealt with that. Or you'll have other veterans who are like, oh, when, you know, this happened to me, this is what it was like. So that in my mind is the most powerful aspect of, of what we do is that huddle. And what the huddle does then is they go out into the world and they connect with each other. And now they have a tribe that's, that's linked. So that network is all over. It's, it's really amazing. And you have five chapters. Uh, you said one's getting ready to kick off in New York. So yep. where are the other four at? Uh, so we have one in Los Angeles, okay. uh, at unbreakable gym. Um, we have one in Las Vegas. Uh, that's at Randy Couture's gym. We have one in Chicago and we have one in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Where's the one here in Atlanta? So we have two, actually two programs. We're trying a, uh, a pilot program right now where we're trying to have it twice, um, twice a week. Uh, so instead of just one workout a week, we go twice a week. And so we're at, um, let's see, it's team Manu MMA gym which is in uh, Smyrna, and uh, the Elite Sports Academy, uh, which is in uh, Buford. And I'm sure if somebody goes on y'all's website, they can learn more about where these facilities are exactly. So what would be the website that they would go to? Uh, vetsandplayers.org. Okay. That's um, and, A-N-D, players.org. Yep. Gotcha. Vetsandplayers.org. And uh, do an application. If it's in one of the five locations, they'll get a warm introduction from the program director in that city. If it's not, um, we'll send them a note and let them know, Hey, you know, we're going to try to get, uh, to your city as soon as we can. The, the, the goal is, um, we're going to do, uh, we'll, we want to have eight by the end of this year. Um, and the, the ultimate goal is one in every NFL city. Wow, that would be fantastic. And of course, that would be close enough that at least most of the veterans within a pretty, you know, four hour distance or something like that, three hour distance would probably be willing to meet, you know, make a drive, get a chance to participate, you know, within these big cities. Yeah. And we're, and we're, uh, you know, at the LA chapter, which is the oldest chapter, the other night they had 112 people show up between veterans and, and, uh, and athletes. And that's amazing. Some of this is just all about the communication, right? It, it is. It is. And, and it's about being heard, right? And it's yeah. about being heard. And it's about being able to, to go to a place where you're not judged, where where you can talk about maybe what you felt on the field and nobody thinks you're an animal or what you felt uh, while you were in combat and nobody thinks that you're broken. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm actually going to go out there and make sure that when we do this episode that we put the link to the website out on the uh, the show notes. So if you guys are listening, you'll be able to to go directly there and find the locations. Tell us about the, the names of the books that you wrote and where people might be able to find those. So uh, the first book is called A Light in the Darkness, Leadership Development for the Unknown, which I wrote with uh, Sarah New, who is an incredibly gifted uh, young writer. Um she had done, she'd actually worked with uh, Dov Seidman, who I, who I mentioned earlier, um, and was able to kind of put 
my thoughts kind of in some sort of coherent manner. Um, and uh, the second book was uh, Meditations of an Army Ranger, a Warrior Philosophy for Everyone, that I wrote with uh, Dr. Alice Atalanta. And uh, again, another phenomenal writer uh, who luckily her knowledge of kind of uh, the classics and the Stoics um, helped with this book because I wanted it to be like Marcus Aurelius's um, meditations. And uh, they're both available on Amazon and also at uh, mvpdevelopmentgroup.com. Uh, they're both available there as well. Uh, but uh, they were they were definitely fun to write. I think I think the second one might be a little bit more fun than the first one because I was still figuring it out on how to write a book. Right. Uh, the second one I think was a little bit more me, um, but it was it was definitely enjoyable. And and I've been very fortunate that you know the NFL has used them, uh, education has used them, a uh, number of organizations have used them. It's a it's just nice that when the when the idea is out there and then people can actually get something out of them. Yeah. No, and it sounds like uh, the books have a, a good, strong background based on our earlier conversations in growth mindset and leadership, which, you know, is something that everybody really needs to pick up. And, you know, the fact that you talk about medi- uh, meditation and calming and, and those types of things in the chaotic world that we live in today, it's so important. Oh, yes, it is. And, uh, and and it's really about, you know, maybe being kind to ourselves and being kind to each other, uh, which is usually not something you hear out of an army ranger. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but honestly, it's about being really thoughtful and being deliberate in your life and uh, and understanding you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes every single day. Some of them are, are huge. Some of them are little. But, you know, figuring out how do you get past those, not letting them control you and uh and move forward and and if you're gonna if you're gonna if you can do that with yourself you can do that with people around you as well jc thanks for stopping by on your travels and stuff i'm glad we got a chance to sit down and uh, cover all the things that we talked about lots of good stuff so i appreciate you stopping by well thank you thank you for having me like i said it's it's an absolute uh honor and i'm humbled to be to be on this show because i've I've just been so blown away by by your guests, so it's it means a lot to just be included with that group. Thanks, JC. Really appreciate it. Thank you.